All right, well, uh, we're continuing in our current teaching series on the Bible, a series we're calling Well Read, and over the course of the next at least two weeks, and possibly a little longer, it just depends on how, how things go, I want to take some time to teach uh, you how to read well, specifically how to read Scripture well, since as we've already noted, it's not at all uncommon for people to mishandle Scripture, even sometimes in their desire to honor it. Uh, just to get us focused and moving again, would you stand with me once again and honor the Word of God? And once again, we're going to either read or recite together that verse we've been working on memorizing together for the last few weeks, Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, 2 Timothy 2, 15, and together uh, we say, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and, and you may be seated. Now we keep returning to this verse to kind of get us started and moving. Because of its exhortations to do your best to correctly handle the word of truth, to do your best to handle the scriptures the way they were meant to be handled. And that would naturally include doing your best to read them the way they were meant to be read. Uh, now, most conservative Christians have been instructed, they've been rightly and, and repeatedly encouraged to read the Bible literally. Now, let me be very clear. You need to read the Bible literally. You need to take it seriously, and you need to believe it and trust it as you do. But reading the Bible literally, simply does not mean what appears an awful lot of Christians seem to think it means. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. In common speech, when you tack the word literally onto the end of a statement, you're basically telling the person listening to you that you want them to take your words in their most exact, concrete possible meanings. So if I said to you, Tim was 10 feet tall, literally, that means if I took a tape measure and held it up to Tim, he would measure 9 feet 12 inches, because that's what literally means in common speech. That is not what it means uh, to read the Bible or any other piece of writing literally, however. For instance, a literal reading of Matthew 25, 33 does not mean that when Jesus says he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, that when he returns, he's going to spend time separating livestock. The word literal literally means to the letter or according to the letters. And so to read the Bible literally means to read it according to the way it was written or to read it as it was written to be read. And the truth is, many parts of the Bible were written to be read figuratively. As a result, in those cases, to read the words at face value would be to damage the text and its meaning. Again, for example, Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, Jesus makes this promise. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. 
homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So what is Jesus saying here? He is literally saying that no matter what you give up for him, you'll always get far more in return. He's literally saying you cannot outgive God. And what you get from him is always infinitely better than what you surrender for him. Jesus is not, however, literally saying, if you lose three children in service to God, you'll get 300 children back in this life. He's saying that figuratively, which means to take those words at their literal face value would be to misread them. Now, a few months ago, I taught some of this material to our youth group. I kind of told them I kind of beta tested it on them. And since I was teaching on the subject of the Bible, I thought it would be good every night to force them to spend some time reading the Bible. So for every lesson at the beginning, I would have to read a passage of Scripture, and then I would give them a sheet of questions to answer relative to the passage they read before I would do my teaching. One of those nights, I had them read the account from the Old Testament, the historical account of the time the Israelites found the book of God, the book of the law, during the reign of King Josiah. It's a powerful historical account, first, of how the people of God neglected His Word to the point they literally lost it. And second, an account of how they honored the written Word of God once they found it again. The passage I had them read was uh, 2 Kings 22 and 23, and it began this way. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adaiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, they had to read a whole lot more than that, but that was how the passage began. The first three questions I asked them were very intentional, and they were, how old was Josiah when he began his reign? Who was his mother? And who was his father? And every single person in the room answered this way. He was eight years old when he began his reign. His mother's name was Jedidah, and his father was David. The problem, of course, is Josiah's father was Ammon. And uh, when I asked the children, or, or and actually some of the adults, why did everyone say Josiah's father was David? The answer was because that's what the Bible says. It says he walked in all the ways of his father David. But David died over 300 years before Josiah was born. And my point in that particular exercise, because I was willing to bet they were all going to answer that way. I kind of set them up for it. My point was that the Bible doesn't say David was Josiah's father. That's what the words say. But that's not at all what they mean. In Hebrew idioms, to refer to someone as someone else's father is to ascribe to that person similar characteristics. In other words, the writer here was saying that Josiah was a lot like David in many ways. He was a good king like David. He was a king who, like David, sought to honor God. To say that an Old Testament king was like his father Ahab or like his father Manasseh was to say a tremendous amount about his character, but nothing whatsoever about his parentage. 
And to read the words of 2 Kings 22-2 literally according as they were meant to be read requires you to read them idiomatically, figuratively. Now, most Christians are eager and excited to agree with me when I expose the error of critics who want to take Jesus' words at face value and say he was wrong when he said mustard seeds are the smallest of all seeds, or who want to say the Bible was historically inaccurate when it said Josiah's father was David. Most, people, most Christians, and frankly most people, are happy to agree with me at that point. But I find they get much more testy when I point out that some of their very favorite doctrines were derived in exactly the same way. Derived from reading literally passages of Scripture that were written to be read figuratively. Let me just, before I go on, say, once again after the sermon today, I'll be down front (laughs) if you would like to come and talk or ask questions or about that. But having said that, I want to share, I'm going to share with you over the course of the next few weeks several keys for how to read the Bible correctly, how to read the Bible as it was written to be read. And I want to start this morning with two. And the first key to reading the Bible as it was meant to be read is to read it in the context of the type of literature it is. That is to say, to read it in the proper context of its proper literary genre. The word Bible literally means book. And the Bible is, in fact, a collection of books, 66 books in all, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, different books written with different human authors, written in different times, in different genres, and even in different languages. Some of the books of the Bible are histories, some are prophecies, some are poetry, some are wisdom literature, and each genre was written in a way so that it would, should be read in the context of its genre. Paul's letters, for example, are real letters written to real people, and that's how they should be written, how they should be read. They should, Paul's letters should not be read as high-minded academic theological musings because that's not how they were written. Poetry is written in poetic language, language rich in imagery, symbolism, and often exaggeration. Poetry is not technical writing. Poetry is not scientific writing, and so it should never be read as such. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 103, verse 3 says, among other things, that God heals all your diseases. But Psalm 103 is poetry. It's poetry like, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. Now the author of that poem assumes you actually understand that you don't really see trees the way you see poems. That there are in fact some truly ugly trees. And that trees don't actually have mouths with which to drink anything from the earth. In much the same way, the writer of Psalm 103 understood he was writing Hebrew Hebrew poetry. And so this part of verse 3 is saying, without a shadow of a doubt, that God heals, that He is a healer, that He is gracious and generous with His healing, 
that you can and should believe he heals and have great confidence in that. But it's saying that in poetic language. And so, to insist that this verse is also saying that God promises he will always heal every single sickness or disease you may ever have is to misread this text, is to read it in a way it was not written to be read. It is to take these powerful words of poetry and twist them into a promise or twist them into a cold, hard statement of fact. Yes, the words say he heals all your diseases. But these words were written to be read as poetry. Now, sometimes I've heard preachers take passages like this and proclaim very loudly, all means all. But the simple truth of the matter is, that's not at all how words are used in real life. And that's not at all how language actually works in general. Sometimes all means all. And sometimes all just means a lot. When you were a child and you raked the yard and you went and told your mom that you had gotten up all the leaves, it didn't mean there was not a leaf anywhere to be found on the property. And your mom did not point to the one she saw under the holly bush and call you a liar. Or when your mom says to you, you never remember to take out the trash. She's not encouraged when you point out that you actually did remember four weeks ago. Her statement was never meant to be taken as empirical fact. So to respond that you do sometimes remember is to miss her point entirely. Her words are, you never remember. But her point is, you too often forget. That's the way we use language every day. That's the way the Bible uses language as well. Or consider Psalm 139, 13, where David says to the Father, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. This is beautiful, evocative, poetic language celebrating God's great gift of life. What it is not, however is a material explanation of the child formation and development process. At creation, Genesis chapter 1, God set in place a reproductive process for all life on this planet. He designed it into his creation so that children could be conceived and born. And so could puppies and kittens and baby birds and flowers, each according to their own kind. This God-established process, then, means God is, in fact, the ultimate and original source of every new life throughout all of history. Although he does no longer needs to be directly, personally, hands-on involved in every single new conception. In other words... I believe the Bible teaches in general that conception and development are natural processes designed and set in motion by God. They didn't evolve. God made them. 
set them in place, designed them into the world at creation. Yes, God knows you and he loves you as only he can. He knows you more intimately than anyone else could ever know you. But you were formed by the intersection of sperm and egg. What that means in part is this. A birth defect in a child is the result then of some breakdown in this God-designed natural process. A process which, like all processes, was damaged at the fall. It's not the result, in other words, of God intentionally misknitting the child. Of God intentionally knitting a malformed heart or a cleft palate. Of God intentionally underknitting the internal organs or the spinal cord. To read the poetry of Psalm 139 as material fact as a literal description of the literal activity of God with each and every single conceptus is to open the door to all sorts of troubling propositions. We can and we should thank God in the midst of everything. But that's not at all the same as thanking Him for everything. Pastorally, I can stand with a family who's lost a child. And I can, with great conscience and great faith, thank God for His presence and His comfort and His healing and His hope. I do not, however, believe Psalm 139 requires me to thank Him for intentionally somehow knitting the child so as to make it die in utero. In general, I don't believe God works that way. And a proper reading of this psalm reading it as poetry and not as science, reading it in the light of Genesis 1 through 3, saves me from all the consternation that often results from an unbiblical understanding of predestination. Listen, a reading of the Scripture that only works in the situations where you want it to is likely a misreading of Scripture. And intellectual honesty demands... That if you read this psalm to mean that God is always directly hands-on responsible for every mother's healthy baby, then you must also read it to say God is always directly hands-on responsible for every other mother's miscarriage. Thankfully, reading this psalm in line with its genre, recognizing it as poetry rather than science, means you don't have to do that. In much the same way, Proverbs are wisdom literature. They reflect general principles of how things usually work. They should not, therefore, be read as direct promises from God or as absolute statements of fact. For example, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. That verse is true as a proverb. Because it is a proverb, it reflects a general truth. But it would be an abuse of this text to read it to mean that no well-trained child will ever wander or go astray. It would be an abuse of this text to read it to mean that every prodigal child was poorly trained by their parents. 
it would be an abuse of this text to read it to mean the universe is somehow obligated by this verse to force a wayward son or daughter to repent and return. Additionally, much of the Bible is history, including at least 12 books of the Old Testament, more if you include the Torah. But it's important that you remember as you read history that history is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, history tells you what happened, not what should have happened. I've had people try to tell me any number of times that the Bible is okay with all kinds of evil things because it tells about those things happening, even among the people of God. Listen, the fact that David had multiple wives does not mean God condones polygamy. In fact, David's actions in regard to that appear to be a direct violation of Deuteronomy 17.17, which said before there was ever a king in Israel, when there is a king in Israel, quote, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Just because somebody did something in the Bible doesn't mean God was okay that they did it. History is descriptive, not prescriptive, and you need to remember that as you read it. So your first key to reading Scripture the way it was meant to be read is to read it according to the genre in which it was written. And the bottom line then is this. Poetry is not science. Proverbs are not promises. History is descriptive, not prescriptive. And pastoral letters are not academic theological treatises. And to read any of them in those ways is to read them incorrectly. In my opinion, a failure, failure to follow this one guideline may be the single most important reason for almost all theological error in the world. Your second key for reading the Bible correctly this morning is that you need to read it according to the context of the context in which it was written, or the context of the text in which it was written. Each word needs to be understood within the context of its own verse. Each verse within the context of its own chapter, each chapter within the context of its own book, and each book within the context of its own historical, cultural, and canonical setting. For example, Romans chapters 9 through 11 are a discussion of the Jews' place within God's great plan of creation now that Jesus has come. I assure you the Apostle Paul never imagined that they would be read as a detailed explanation of some large-scale doctrine of predestination. They are not theological treatises. Paul was responding to real questions from real people in Rome. Paul was answering immediate, pressing, practical questions about whether or not Jews are saved by their Jewishness. He was not laying out a sort of proto-Calvinism. Similarly, Jesus' comment in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. That occurs in the context of a discussion of church discipline. And therefore, it is a quote related to church discipline. It's about the people of God joining together to agree on matters of church discipline on how to handle folks in the church who simply won't do. It is not a general blank check obligating God to grant you anything you ask for as long as you can get one other person to say amen. Blow the trumpet in Zion was a popular praise and worship song written in 1983. It appears to me the writer of this song wildly misunderstood the text from which he took it. It was taken from Joel chapter 2. And Joel chapter 2 is a prophecy about God sending terrible judgment on his people for their sin. 
The lyrics of the song gleefully declare. They, they rush on the city. They run on the walls. Great is the army that carries out his word. Very catchy song. But that great army they're celebrating in the song, that great army in Joel 2, is a powerful destructive force sent to wipe out God's people. The text, in fact, goes on to explain that the proper response to this army is not to dance and celebrate them, but rather to return to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Finally, one last example. I find it ironic that some Christian ministries describe their teaching ministry using a partial quote from Isaiah 23. They talk about teaching precept upon precept, line upon line. I find that ironic since the actual context of that partial quote is God passing judgment on His people and telling them that He will not give them full or clear revelation. In fact, it says this, The word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. This wasn't a blessing. It was a curse. Theologian Don Carson credits his father with having said, a text without a context is just a pretext for a proof text. What does he mean by that? He means ripping a scripture out of its context and using it to prove something you want it to prove is a serious abuse of scripture. It is disrespectful to the written word of God and potentially a dangerous thing. As the people who love God, and love His Word, including His written Word, we need to love the Bible enough not to handle it carelessly. We need to love the Bible enough to take our time and read it correctly. and Make sure the things we're saying it says are in fact the things it means to say. Father, once again, as always, we are grateful for the power and the clarity of your word, your word which instructs us in the way we should go, your word that shows us who you are, and it shows us who we were created to be, your word that is given as a gift to lead and guide our lives. May we do our best to handle it correctly. Forgive us, O Lord our God, for all the times we have handled it carelessly, for times we have taken it out of context and used it to say things we wanted it to say that it wasn't really written to say. Help us to love you and to love the scriptures in ways that honor you and honor them. Make us more and more the people you've called us and created us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.